Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome everybody. I'm Garima Jaju, um, um, a, a host at the New Books Network, and I'm joined by Sneha Navarapu. Uh, and we're both in conversation today with Shahana Ghosh, uh, author of uh, this wonderful new book, A Thousand Tiny Cuts, just out with the University of California Press. Um, um, Shahana, so great to have you. Uh, we're so happy to be in conversation with you today. I'm delighted to be in conversation with the two of you, uh, Garima, and I'm especially uh, pleased that I get to be in conversation with two and not just one fantastic NBN host. Pleasure. And as is tradition, uh, let's let's just start with um, with your biography as an anthropologist. So, how did you come into anthropology, and how did you how did you come to study study borderlands and mobilities and immobilities? Uh, sure. So there are sort of two different but related questions are how I became an anthropologist and how I came to this project in in sort of this way particularly. Um, You know, I was a student of literature uh, for my undergrad and master's uh, in India. And it was really during my um, MA in literature in Jadavpur University in Kolkata that I worked uh, for two years as a part-time social worker in an anti-trafficking organization and uh, simultaneously it was I was taking this really inspiring class in the literature of the diasporas um, at Jadavpur. Uh, The two had nothing to do with each other but for the diaspora lit class I ended up, you know, as one has to do these kinds of term papers, I ended up doing a little a mini ethnographic study of the old, old, old uh, Armenian community in Kolkata. I didn't know what ethnography was. Uh, I didn't know who anthropologists were. Uh, but that class and the way it was taught really blew my mind and the way in which it introduced, you know, we very much read literary texts as kind of historical texts, as sociological texts, as, uh, uh, you know, kind of encoding histories and social worlds of migrant diaspora communities, and really thinking about storytelling as a way in which to um, understand the histories and struggles and you know, life worlds of migrant and diaspora communities across the world, but especially the post-colonial world. Um, And so for me, doing this, thinking of the Armenian community as an example of a diaspora community right in, you know, in my backyard, in the city I grew up in and, you know, thought I knew very well, was a way to kind of getting to know diaspora histories, but the method of doing this kind of ethnographic work uh, was totally new and I didn't know what I was doing was ethnographic uh, work right so it was really but I loved it I enjoyed it so 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 very much 
that uh, it was a real revelation for me. You know, I was like, oh my God, I love, I actually love uh, people very much. My When I was a, a, a child, my mother used to say, or it was said about me that I could talk to a lamppost. I really enjoyed talking uh, to anyone or anything. But so I think really, well, like, talking with people, listening to stories, working with stories of real people rather than textual, as I did as a student of literature, I think was what I realized was I what I really enjoyed and um, found valuable. That then, why simultaneously, uh, I was doing, you know, I was working, as I said, mentioned, uh, uh, as a social worker in my, uh, at, while I was doing this MA, um, and that is what took me to the borderlands. Uh, so a lot of what I was doing was these, um, part of it was uh, these uh, uh, um, anti-trafficking awareness campaigns in the borderlands, which is both a, which is both a site of transit, uh, you know, across the border between India and Bangladesh and also India and Nepal for the trafficking of women and children. Uh, but also uh, sort of awareness for a lot of uh, female migrants away from the borderlands to other metropolitan centers. Um, and so I was I was both involved in these anti-trafficking awareness campaigns and casework for uh, women and uh, children rescued during raids um, in various uh, brothels or uh, sort of sex work uh, areas in various cities in Eastern India. And in doing that work, I became, I both learned a lot about, of course, the anti-trafficking industry, the transnational politics of funding, you know, the those, those sorts of things and the way in which they uh, view, you know, borderlands become sites and women in borderlands in particular become, uh, you know, objects of intervention in particular ways. So to me, that was also a kind of introduction into uh, think, you know, sort of while working, gaining a critical understanding of that industry in which I was working, you know, that uh, developmental uh, uh, industry in which I was working, um, I realized I had reservations, a lot of questions about the kind of work and interventions I was participating in. And so the two, the the sort of realization that I wanted to work with real people, importance of like that I really enjoyed and found storytelling to be very powerful, a means of investigation and uh, critical, uh, you know, in examination and that sort of work is really what, so a lot of my uh, teachers of literature in Jadavpur really said, well, you know, I think you really need to think about social anthropology. And that's sort of what made me switch. I ended up applying and getting a scholarship to do a MPhil in migration studies and social, it was uh, in the UK, so it was a very migration studies focused class, but it a course, but it was taught out of uh, an anthropology department. It was housed in an anthropology department. So that was really my shift to anthropology and becoming, you know, sort of exposed uh, uh, training. And I remember that the summer before I left for the went to the UK, I spent the summer in the Patuli Center, the Center for uh, Studies and Social Sciences in Kolkata, reading, you know, going to the librarian and saying, what are the ethnographies? What what can I read? What are you know? I want to read ethnography. So he was like, okay, something more specific than that. Uh, but you know, trying to read about what do anthropologists do? What is an ethnography? So that was the shift to anthropology, and then in a way also um, the path to this project. It's what really introduced me to the borderlands. Um, I then after my MPhil came back. Uh, went back to India and worked in human rights uh, along the India-Bangladesh border. Um, and so that more directly led me to this uh, this project, the, the, you know, what I, uh, the, my research for the PhD, which is that, again, you know, and I've always had a relationship of uh, kind of moving between, I suppose, uh, social justice, activism, and uh, academia uh, uh, or academic inquiry. Um, and so I came to this particular project very much interested in questions of uh, law and illegality and um, sort of violence and um, 
particularly gendered violence, but different forms of injustice and inequality in borderlands, but very much from this kind of human rights, legal, uh, law, illegality perspective, which changed, you know, over the course of my uh, decade-long research and writing. But that's sort of both my kind of orientations and uh, interests in this, in, in Borderlands and uh, this project. Yeah, thank you. And you know, that really, uh, now that you've given us a bit of a context, it makes uh, so much sense in the way the book is also written, like we can clearly tell the stakes uh, that you have at a, at a theoretical level, but also at a, I guess at a personal level as well in telling these stories, right? And you also do bring up um, the, I guess your, um, personal like familial uh, story around migration uh, a little bit, uh, not a lot, but a little bit. And uh, we've talked about it uh, uh, in other contexts. And um, I guess would just love for you to say a little bit about, you know, how did this project sort of materialize in terms of the logistics, right? So it is a very ambitious kind of ethnography. You've done ethnography on both sides of the border, which is often it's not something you see very often. So how was like the sort of day-to-day -day of ethnography? How did you plan this entire thing out and how did it materialize? What are the kinds of maybe issues also that you faced, right? But also the joys and pleasures, I guess, of doing this kind of work, which is very expansive in its scope and ambition. Absolutely. Um, sure, happy to talk about that. So, you know, I think the the to continue where I left off, I think what really uh, allowed me to have this a vision um, for this project was really informed by the work I did in the you know years previous to the PhD to uh, starting the PhD when I I was expressly uh, hired uh, by a South Asian human rights organization to conduct a human rights audit of this border for where for a year I had the privilege and opportunity to uh, travel along the length of this border on both sides, you know? And so that already gave me a sense of the uh, diversity, you know, it's an overforce, you know, for just a quick heads up for listeners unfamiliar with this region, it's an over 4,000 kilometer long border, which much like the uh, US-Mexico and several other long uh, land borders in the world um, is regionally very diverse, you know? So it has very diverse uh, sections, uh, both geographically, but also uh, ecologically, politically, cult you know, cultural, sociocultural, uh, uh, ethnically. And so uh, that kind of gave me a, a, a good grounding in that regional diversity and a sense that I wanted to focus on Northern Bengal. So that was one decision taken, which is a region of multiple borders, right? So uh, borders with, uh, India's borders with Nepal, uh, and Bhutan are close by, very different kind of regional approach and definitely do uh, uh, research on both sides. Um, then I also had the privilege, and I must, you know, mark that in relation to peers, uh, you know, different kinds of institutional uh, settings, um, whether in India or elsewhere, is that I had the privilege of a, of a uh, you know, well-supported, uh, supported uh, American PhD program where I could do, um, uh, uh, you know, preliminary, I could do summers of uh, pretty uh, lengthy, you know, three months of um, uh, fieldwork every summer before I went on, a, you know, the sort of long-term immersive fieldwork stint. So I used those summers to also particularly like to check, sort of check out where would I base myself um, and, uh, you know, it, as I, it, I think that's a huge privilege to be able to do that. But again, very quickly, I had uh, considerations. I was very much guided by uh, practical considerations. I did try, I spent a couple, you know, time in slightly different areas uh, and ultimately chose the, the particular area on both sides uh, rather than others for a number of reasons, mainly guided by actually safety and comfort and where I found uh, uh, sort of practically uh, comfortable places to stay, but also 
uh, communities that I felt at ease with, who with whom uh, I felt that I, I could foresee spending long periods of time with. Um, and so those were sort of decisions, uh, those were sort of considerations that guided where I chose. And I, I, I yeah, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, no, that's fantastic. That's such a wonderful answer because it really shows all that goes into all the life that flows into making a book project and making an anthropologist, uh, something that goes back to your childhood as a child talking to a lamppost, but also questions of safety and pragmatism, but also just personality traits. Who will you like to spend time with? Who, you know, where your dispositions match? So that's really wonderful. And I especially appreciate stories of coming into ethnography, not knowing that you had been engaged in ethnographic mode of thinking and engaging for long before. Um, I wanted to ask a question about your wonderful book title, a Thousand Tiny Cuts, and the way in which it frames your ethnography, especially um, around thinking about bordering as various forms of cutting, uh, cutting histories, cutting materially, affectively, short, you know, deep cuts, narrow cuts. Um, so maybe you want to speak a little about how you're theorizing the practice of bordering or the everyday experience of bordering um, as constituted by various um, um, tiny cuts, really. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I came to this metaphor relatively recently. So it was sort of later in the process uh, of writing the book that I, I arrived at this metaphor. Um, and it was, I think it's an adequate uh, one for what I had really been searching for through the, the, the various stages of writing, which is a way to uh, communicate the not just you know not just a very neat analytical term for bordering uh, or to explain bordering uh, but really to get at the texture of bordering you know um, and so as you say I see bordering uh, uh, I the, the my I theorize bordering uh, ethnographically in this book as not a watershed event uh, as partition is, uh, you know, often held to be, uh, but a, a lot of very important scholarship I build on that, which points to uh, partition being a long process. But especially the uh, I, I theorize bordering as a process that isn't over. You know, it was not. It isn't a long historical process, but that is nonetheless uh, historical that we have now inherited. But bordering, I conceptualize, theorize as fundamentally ongoing. Um, it's an ongoing process that expands and accumulates, right? So it's the qualities of bordering are that it is expansive over time, over space, over imaginaries, um, and it, accre it accretes, it accumulates. So, you know, so it's very layered. So this cutting is, is the, it's not a, um, you know, we can't see it in, a structure or a policy or you know watershed as I say a watershed event but uh it is this 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 kind of uh and, and this kind of expansive uh and accumulative um uh phenomenon right um which at the same time that it is uh ongoing is uh Every day, you know, it's also a term I use is, is um, to describe bordering is an ordinary eventfulness, you know, so I, I sort of, I, a lot of my sort of theoretical concern has been to um, adequately describe the way in which this is neither an everyday phenomenon, nor is it, uh, you know, a spectacular event, a singular or spectacular event. There are multiple, you know, when we look at bordering and we theorize bordering from the life uh, and, and over generations from this kind of long jury process uh, in the borderlines, we see that there are very important milestones in people's lives, right? That, um, both in people's individual uh, lives within communities, but also in kind of historical political terms. The the narration of bordering is not that it's every day and kind of un uh, like everywhere and every day, but not located. That's that's not uh, uh, true either, right? It's marked by important um, 
in milestones, uh, but they're not necessarily the ones that are uh, marked by nationalist, by received nationalist uh, histories or kind of big P politics, right, of of the region or of these states. So, so I was. I, to, I, I wanted a language, a metaphor that allowed me to describe the way in which this bordering, as I theorize it, as I describe it in this way, is, is uh, felt uh, by people. And I use the term felt especially because I really, really, you know, that was one of the things that I was very, very attentive to as I wrote is, is to be able to communicate this texture. And so to me, I think this is, I hope, uh, adequate way to communicate that. I think that was a really, really helpful, Shana, especially to kind of capture the overarching sort of argument that you're making in the book that plays out in different ways in each uh, chapter. And Garim and I were discussing before we started recording that the this book is so expansive, right? Like there's actually so much that both of us were thinking about asking you. And even though we do have to discipline our questioning, um, you know, to a reasonable limit, but there's just so much going on in terms of various aspects of the sort of cutting that you're talking about uh, manifesting in time, space, imaginaries, subjectivities of borderland residents. Um, but the one thing that I think the other sort of thing that pulls this book together is uh, mobile ethnography, right? As a transnational feminist uh, praxis. Um, I would love for you to say a little bit more about how you're conceptualizing mobile ethnography and also um, about walking as a method, not just in terms of providing you these ethnographic observations along the border, but really constituting the very experience of bordering itself. So how are you thinking about walking? Because there are other mobile ethnographies that you do uh, explore, like spatial histories, right? Um, or the commodity chain analysis. But um, if you could speak a little bit about walking, as um, as a mode of theorizing bordering itself. That'll be great. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. I'd be delighted to, because, you know, again, um, I I wanted, uh, you know, you may have noticed that I, 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 I quite explicitly draw attention to methods uh, in the writing. Um, I think, and I, I'm very indebted to feminist scholars, feminist anthropology in particular, uh, which, which, of course, has taught us uh, the importance of um, not just situated, uh, you know, viewpoints, partial, um, uh, uh, the the importance of partial uh, epistemol, uh, you know, epistemologies and um, uh, viewpoints, but I, I I wanted to develop that further uh, to to really think about relationality. So, you know, a, 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 a transnational feminist a praxis to do fieldwork on both sides to me is not, you know, is, is the starting point rather than the end goal of uh, mobile ethnography, right? Or transnational uh, research, right? You, do, you don't, we don't solve that problem by just doing research on both sides. We don't solve the problem of overcoming methodological nationalism on, on both sides, but really to be able to show how a relational uh, um, and situated and partial um, uh, knowledge is uh, achieved um, I think requires us to reflect very, very carefully on our methods, who we are, what our field look, you know, what our field looks like, can or cannot be the limits of those kinds of methods, right? And uh, I, I'm, and then there are, you know, I describe many. Uh, each chapter, I think, is sort of centered around. I mean, there there are many, but each chapter centers around a, a particular method. Uh, and while walking is, you know, I walk a lot, everyone walks a lot of, through the book. Um, walking became really the center store, uh, the sort of centerpiece of one, uh, the, the second chapter, as you mentioned, Sneha. And uh, initially, you know, when I designed, when I began with the research plan and the, the field work, it was very much a method. It was a means to an end. I thought I would walk with folks, with borderland residents to sort of see what happens. And then 
clearly through field work and much more so I realized as I was writing both the dissertation and then the book that walking was not just a method to you know uh, gather insights but walking walks the rural neighborhood the paths the routes themselves were particular kinds of sites transnational sites right so I really came to see that that walking is not you know, just a method for mobile ethnography, um, but walking is a key site for a transnational feminist, uh, uh, you know, lens onto mobility. Um, and and while for me, this is in the borderlands, I can imagine that, you know, this would be equally true in other kinds of spaces that are not borderlands. Um, you know, walking was, uh, the site in which much of this bordering, you know, back to the earlier question of the bordering, the way in which people, you know, uh, surveillance of mobility is not only genders, particular bodies, right, but also relationally. So back to the question of relation, relationality, the way in which, so I was perceived by, you know, women walking with me or, uh, you know, groups of people we encountered or I encountered along the way, right? So people were continuously, men and women were continuously engaging each other, their gendered, you know, other gendered bodies, uh, placing uh, themselves in relation to other gendered mobilities along walks, Right. So a lot of that kind of knowledge, so it was it's not, you know, that is particularly revealing that it's in borderlands. It's not just the different kinds of state actors uh, surveilling borderland residents, but borderland residents themselves are uh, very much, uh, you know, kind of figuring out who's who and what's what in terms of. Uh, this whole spectrum of mobilities, clandestine mobilities, uh, while walking. And walking is both the uh, site of that kind of figuring out um, and the object of surveillance, right? The object of uh, where you can go, what that says about you, who are you walking with, what time of the day you're walking, uh, you know, all those. So these gender geographies both emerge uh, so they're both very much means as well as the very site on what on which a lot of this action of kind of um, setting people in hierarchical relations is happening. Thank you. That was fantastic. Um, my next question is about where, where is the India-Bangladesh border? And I want to ask it in the same way as you ask in the book, because it's such a, because in the way in which you tackle this question, it's such a great education in how a simple where question can become so theoretically fraught and come to frame your entire book and argument. Um, so where is the border and how, how can one think about it? I may be cheeky, you have to read the book. And the answer is not only in the first chapter, but, you know, you have to read till the end. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I I think it's a, um, it's a question that I ask to unsettle uh, our assumption. Uh, and this is, you know, an assumption, I think, that is not particular to the India-Bangladesh border and certainly not particular to South Asia or even post-colonial or sort of borders, borderlands in the majority world. But really, I think just in the way we think conceptually, we think borderlands uh, appear where there are borders. And there has been some amount of scholarship on the idea of mobile borders, that borders are not fixed in, you know, of course, uh, in, in geopolitical borders, but are in perhaps in bodies, uh, are in particular kinds of people. So they're, uh, they travel with certain kinds of people. And that's very true. And I certainly, you know, agree and see that happening. At the same time, um, you know, I also want us to analytically make a shift from thinking about borders and, and being fixated on borders per se to both borderlands as spaces and bordering as practices, right? So to 
distinct related of course but actually distinct kinds of conceptual shifts I would you know like us to make in reading you know I'd like to provoke with my work is one borderlands as particular kinds of spaces don't appear where there are borders and this is true anywhere of the world right no matter what the you know histories of those um, regions are of those particular borders are but borderlands as particular kinds of spaces right that they're underdeveloped they're remote they're uh, dodgy there they have like, risk, like all kinds of stuff happening there that's risky so these are all qualities that come to be associated with these spaces that appear natural but are in fact the product of uh, all kinds of very uh, contested political uh, relations right at multiple scales so one in asking where is the borderland, seemingly a uh, you know, very innocent question. I want to unsettle uh, what we think we know about borderlands, where they are and what they are. You know, so as soon as we begin to question uh, where we think they are, we begin to see that maybe we don't know even what they are, right? So those two are the where and what of borderlands are very related. And secondly, the shifting our gaze from so much the effects of borders to really understanding bordering as these kinds of practice, you know, as a as a, a practice, but as a set of relations, as these hierarchical relations uh, of value that then extend so expansively across life that perhaps you'd be hard pressed to find any aspect of life that is not you know that is not reshaped by the kind of devaluations that bordering as a hierarchical relation of value brings right so it's it's really quite simple i think bordering is a relationship of value yeah and um it leaves no you know arguably it's not at all an exceptional relationship in that sense, right? But it's actually very, uh, very a pervasive relationship, right? So uh, it it touches every part of life. Yeah, you know, what I really appreciated about your um, about your book, but also I think your style of thinking is that you stay with the starting questions for very long. So the starting question of what something is, where something is, and you stay with it for so long that it starts getting really muddy and then you stay with the confusion of that. So just staying with the question that I don't know, I cannot give you an answer for where this border is, it really sets the stage for you to theorize the border as a relationship of hierarchical value. Um, and that's so productive because then you stay with that for so long that it's not just value in terms of the two nation states, but value from, you know, it scales human bodies, questions of, you know, uh, uh, agrarian commodities, or even the value of brides and grooms on the, the marriage and love market. Um, so uh, just an invitation to speak more about that, about how can we think about bordering as creating hierarchical value um, and bordering as thinking of creating um, these relational relationships? Sure. Um, I'm glad you found it, um, happy to hear that you found it productive uh, uh, to to this this framework productive to to think with, um, you know, for me as I wrote the dissertation and rewrote this uh, as a book, uh, I I wanted to to return to something I mentioned earlier. I wanted really to be kind of honest. You know, there was a few different kinds of um, commitments and I guess preoccupations that guided this intellectual project. One, uh, really to stay true to a. a, a a feminist scholarship that uh, does away with the all-knowing omniscient narrator, right? So not just to say, okay, this is a partial um, view of this, of X from Y vantage point, but that even of that X from the Y vantage point, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of things I don't know. Uh, and there are a lot of things that change and I won't pretend otherwise. So one, how do we stay with that? And that's, it is not just an empirical question. I think it's a deeply, deeply uh, epistemological question. Uh, you know, so how to uh, to keep that in the, the writing, you know, one. So 
part of the staying with and not resolving even you know perhaps till the end is 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 one that and i i really been inspired by a number of feminist scholars, uh, uh, including several of Borderlands, uh, but also of surveillance and policing, who really grapple with the this uh, the politics of knowledge under conditions of uh, you know surveillance uh, and policing, where a lot of lot is at stake in knowing. So that's one part of it. The other part is uh, 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 you know so that very much informs the way I. Uh, uh, sort of structure and write this uh, ethnography overall. Um, second, with bordering uh, and a relationship of value, you know, for a long time, I thought uh, it was a great disadvantage that my I didn't have a sort of one line answer to this is a borderland book about X, right? So it isn't about like kind of smuggling of a particular economy or about kinship or about uh, young men or about young women or, you know, it, but it, it seemed to be that I, and for a long time, I thought this was a great weakness, which is that, you know, I, what, what do you want? I have something to, I have something to offer everyone, like whatever you want. You want a, something about marriage? I can tell, I have a chapter on that. You want a great, it, it's just a very agrarian studies book. I can tell you about, you know, a, a many different agrarian commodity chains. Okay, I write about, um, you know, tobacco and ganja in the, uh, in the book, but I could equally write about, uh, you know, a, a potato or a maize as commodity chains. Uh, oh, wait, I could write about, um, you know, uh, cough syrup being like drug smuggling instead, right? So it it seemed like I, there was a lot of these uh, very different aspects. So for me, uh, so I think conceptually getting away from, uh, again, a kind of anthropological fetish actually about around uh, illegality as the sort of driving framework for thinking about border political economy was super productive for me, right? That this is not about uh, um, either moral economy alone or uh, law, questions of law and illegality, illicitness, those, those kinds of things alone, but rather something much, much more fundamental and in a way much, much more simple which allows us to see how these very different domains of life are related to one another. And that's value. And this is a, you know, in a way, a very oh, boring, classic, quintessentially uh, anthropological concern. But it allowed me to, uh, to see the way in which value is made across different domains of life, right? So quite literally value of land bordering uh, devalues land which then, you know, which is super related to way in which uh, uh, as family, as, you know, young men come of age, have to think about various livelihood options, but as families think about livelihood and, uh, uh, you know, social reproduction, uh, how do they uh, manage questions of um, trade, agrarian commerce, which is changing across this militarizing border, immediately related to questions of ma marriage and kinship. Who do you marry, who you choose, what kinds of kinship relations you choose to invest in are, again, as we know from feminist scholars, always uh, mark, are always also political economic questions about, uh, you know, livelihood and um, care for land and care for uh, other kinds of uh, economic um, questions, right, uh, and calculations. Um, so it, value was really what held these together, and it showed very clearly. I think I think this framework, in a in a very as I say, as, and as you note, in a, in a very elementary way, allows us to see how bordering, in that sense, is actually um, you know the borderlands are not in a way exceptional. Many of these questions, questions of agrarian distress, are you you know are shared across not just agrarian South Asia but agrarian perhaps rural societies uh, across Asia, right? That are, you know, that where to which 
uh, migration, uh, mobile livelihoods are central. And then figuring out these kinds of questions of within mobile communities, uh, how do you manage the status of different kinds of mobilities, uh, the status of different kinds of marriages and alliances? Thank you, Shana. That was uh, really, really helpful again. And spotlighting, I think, one of the novelties of the book, right? Like in terms of how it really pulls together these different domains of life, as you put it, and shows how they're anchored in these shifting conceptions of value. I think the other thing that kept coming up was risk, right? Uh, so whether it's do nombri activities <laughs> across the borders, um, or it's the kind of risks that... Um, people, the borderland residents are constantly um, taking, whether it's to cross the border, whether to get married to uh, someone on the other side of the border, so on and so forth. I began to think about risk in two ways while reading your book, right? One is uh, more of a methodological question, I guess, a question rooted in um, and in a dilemma, perhaps, about um, whether to photograph people, right? Especially when you were talking about uh, the trade of ganja, um, which we know is uh, a clandestine sort of activity, uh, there were accompanying photographs. Um, so I was wondering what were the kinds of risks you thought about as an ethnographer and a writer, right? Like when you're narrating these stories, which uh, are, again, like heavily policed um, residents and areas, how should one think about the risks of writing? Relatedly, uh, I had another question, which I'm just going to ask in this bigger question of risk. Um I guess there's one, the ethnographer's risk, the other being uh, men, right? Like young men in the borderlands. And you write so, um, I think, insightfully that risk and masculinity kind of co-constitute each other at the borderlands, right? Um, and I think it's not just in the borderlands, perhaps. Uh, in my own work, I often think about uh, cab drivers and masculinity being tied up with questions around risk of the safety of women, for instance. But uh, I, I mean, I don't want to take this chance to talk about that. But really, like, there are, there are so many ways to think about risk in your book. So I guess I wanted, was hoping that you'd speak, one, about risk of telling a story about um, borderland residents, and second, one particular instance of risk in your book, which is risk and masculinity. Wonderful. Thank you. Now I'll start with the second uh, prompt first, Neha. I think you're absolutely correct that I think risk, the story of the, the, the relationship between risk and masculinity that uh, I explored in the book is not at all unique to borderlands, right? Uh, I think the I think bordering introduces what I uh, try to sort of uh, mark is that bordering introduces uh, a distinctive set of risks in this larger sort of geography or sort of ecology of risks, right, that young men uh, deal with. And I think that uh, rather than making it too diffuse, I think there is something, what I think there is something specific to in terms of the relationship between risk and masculinity, perhaps, or maybe between, especially between risk and mobility. I think for all, you know, people choosing to uh, move at whatever scale, uh, you know, involves certain kinds of risks, right? Whether that's men or women, uh, but but mobility itself and uh, economic decisions that uh, involve mobility, I think, are inherently calculations of risk. They're not calculations of risk only in and of themselves, you know, sort of in relation to those mobilities and those choices of mobility, but always, as with these young men in borderlands, their calculations of risk in relation to other kinds of risks that people have to take in their lives. So, you know, as was pointed out to me by uh, 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 um, an elderly farmer, that farming is risky. Everyday ordinary farming, whether in borderlands or not, is risky, right? So there are, I think we have to be, uh, while we imagine, while we sort of, become cognizant of this wider set of risks within which people whose risky decisions we are focusing on um, make, right? While there is that wider ecology of risks, I think we it's our job also as analysts to specify what is that wider ecology of risks and how is it gendered in particular ways, right? So the way in which young men in particular, I think, shoulder the burden of risk, and this is perhaps what you know, I think it's not particular at all, but, uh, you know, perhaps you recognize in your own works, Neha, and elsewhere, um, is really the burden of social reproduction, right? Uh, and to be young men in a heteropatriarchal world, 
is to come is comes with certain expectations of what it means to to earn to grow up uh, to marry to uh, support your parents to uh, you know to be a proper decent young man right so i think that this is you know this is a story that this is an expectation a heteropatriarchal expectation that resonates widely now add to that coming of age learning to be not just a man a proper good man but a good proper man in a very criminalized context of a borderland where you learn to also see yourself a child you're in you know you're now you're indian and not bangladesh you're, you're bangladeshi and not indian so indians perceive you in this right so this continuous so you're a, a young man in a rural so it's multiple relational identities right you're a map you know particular gendered identity in a particular rural not urban context in an impoverished rural context in a impoverished rural national context right so you we add on these layers and the risks that you know then are associated with each of these coming into beings in these relational coming into beings i think that is sort of you know we are, i wanted this is of course a very borderline story there are many elements that are particular but in many many ways and that's sort of the larger ambition of the book too is to um de-exceptionalize borderlines in a way i think a lot of uh, uh kind of issues and insights um are much much more uh, pervasive across agrarian uh, South Asia. Thank you. That was fantastic. Um, I want to ask about kinship and cuts. Um, the book is about bordering. Um, and I, mean, I, I should put a spoiler alert here, but the book takes a turn because it's not just about bordering as separation or a gap, but also bordering as a space of intimacy. And I love, and I think um, I, wa I want to sort of bring in kinship here because that chapter, I think, really jumped for me. Because I think, as you also note, that um, there was a kind of surprise that in addition to labor or agrarian commodities, it was just surprising how busy kinship activity was on the border. Um, and I love that you turn from just fragmented kinship to kin work uh, that is happening across borders. Um, I'm just curious to hear more about that, these kinship relations that are sustained and co-constituted across the cut of the border. Sure. Um, you know, so there's a long uh, and rich tradition in uh, 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 rich bodies of uh, work in uh, South Asia uh, on kinship in relation to uh, partition, especially, right, on families, kinship, intimacy in relation to partition. And uh, I found that it was uh, the the lives that people were living in across uh, the India-Bangladesh border across these borderlands told us, revealed neither rupture, you know, that the, the bordering divides uh, families, uh, nor, nor kinship as a space of overcoming the border, right? So uh, sort of overcoming the uh, uh, the artifice of the, the, this is an artificial border, kinship is a space of refuge. You know, kinship is a space of uh, uh, sharing and commonality, but it was a, a bit of both in a in all kinds of interesting, complicated, and surprising arrangements. So, you know, if we think kinship, my, you know, what more is there possibly to say about kinship? I was really surprised that the vantage, and you know, again, all of us who, I guess feminist scholars who really take kinship very seriously uh, it is not a surprise perhaps because it's so generative uh, a, a, a sight and a lens and allows um, for many as you note you know difficult I think um, simultaneities so kinship was it, it's not that it wasn't, you know, it's 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 not only a story of difference of families falling apart, uh, but of this this com continuing commitment to kin work with the recognition that bordering makes it very difficult and puts very uh, um, new stakes to it, right? 
So to invest in kinship uh, is a very deliberate decision, right? Where kinship is no longer natural, like your your you know sort of mothers and daughters and and continuing to uh, relate, invest in relations with their brothers across uh, or parents across the border um, requires so much effort uh, that one really has to put very careful thought into what that relationship means and who you become when you then invest in clandestine mobilities or clandestine uh, kind of transnational networks, right? It, so it changes you as a person uh, to invest in transnational kinship and intimacy. Uh, and, and this is very specific to bordering, right? That in a way that investing in transnational um, kinship uh, is totally, you know, doesn't in, in other contexts might not bring with it the kinds of states that bordering does uh, and militarized bordering over a long duration does, right? So are you, these questions, are you Indian? So cousins or siblings become, uh, you know, kind of their relations to one another are recomposed not only in kinship terms, but as Indian or as Bangladeshi, as uh, you know, somebody who chooses to not uh, uh, indulge in clandestine mobility and somebody who does take that risk, right? So kinship relations are really, uh, we can see, are recomposed according to these uh, hierarchies of value that then that are introduced by bordering. And everyone has to, whether or not you elect, even if you elect not to uh, invest in them, you know, and you're estranged, that is still, you, you are... Um, touched in a way, you're pulled into the kinds of relations of value that bordering uh, forces upon, and militarized bordering particularly forces um, on the gendered uh, mobilities. Thank you, Shana. Thank you. That was very, very helpful. I really enjoyed the idea of counter counter maps, right, or counter networks of kinship that uh, you talk about in that chapter. Um, so I just wanted to kind of, I mean, this is and interviews, interviewers for Par really asked you two, two questions uh, the last time instead of asking one at a time, as I keep telling myself I should do. <laughs> but I think uh, we kind of missed uh, the the other question around photographs and, uh, and I guess, concealment and um, exposure as uh, things that you probably, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about as someone who does do visual anthropology. So I'll let you answer that. And then I have one final question about the book. Uh, but yeah, sorry, I think we just kind of, moved past that question. <laughs> oh, sorry. I absolutely um, missed that question. And, you know, I can, I, I, let me return to it and, and also link up with this, the counter geographies, counter maps mm -hmm. of kinship that you mentioned. Um, so, you know, I have a photo, very quickly, I have a photographic practice, which uh, very, you know, early on became impossible in the way I had naively imagined um, I would, uh, you know, be able mm -hmm. to uh, carry out in the borderlands because I couldn't carry around a big camera, right? So one, uh, the the practice of uh, making images itself uh, changed a lot during fieldwork. But then for a very long time, as, I, as I've been writing, I haven't, you know, I've, I've been, and, and it's not fully figured out yet. I have, a, you know, I, I use images in a particular way in the book. I uh, published a couple of photo essays. But really, overall, I think what unites um, the way in which I uh, use and think about images and this question of concealment and revelation uh, that you ask, Sneha, is much more broadly a question about visuality of borders and bordering, right? So again, how do we tell uh, the story? It, it really comes back to this overarching question about how do we tell stories of the violence of bordering in our contemporary world, right? Both in choices of stories, analyses, but also images, right? What comes to mind when we think about uh, violent borders and violent bordering, right? And I, I, I wanted to, I wanted my work to really engage that question again, very, very closely and consistently. Um, one of the ways in which that manifest is in the choice of images. So you'll see, I'm very, you know, there are very, there are many uh, images which are of uh, uh, people in motion, actually walking or cycling, uh, but from behind, right? So I don't, you know, reveal uh, faces, pictures. There are also blurry pictures, which is 
which again reveals moments of motion. So I was interested in uh, uh, less um, individual kind of portraits is one way in which I got away uh, from this uh, portraiture as a way of, uh, uh, you know, avoiding portraiture as a way of getting away from this question of uh, revelation. But I was interested much more in relationship between bodies and spaces, right? So again, mobil really mobility. And mobility, when we think visually, is is multisensorial. You don't just see it, you feel it, you hear it, you sense it in all kinds of ways, right? Uh, and, and particularly surveillance and security practices, right? Living in this increasingly militarized borderlands, mobility is so sensorial, you feel it in so many different ways. And so uh, my images are, the images I've chosen for the book are a way to uh, tell a kind of parallel story of that multisensorial um, experience of mobility in an increasingly militarized borderland, uh, and really to draw attention to the relationship that bodies in motion have with space. Uh, that's one. But more broadly, and I think the, the use of um, kinship maps, which I don't have a, a visual representation of in the book, but the, you know, those are kind of more uh, other visual means uh, with which to imagine the force of bordering, right? So kinship geographies quite literally have changed. And the way in which women in this very, oh, I know nothing about, you know, when you ask them, tell me about the, you know, changing life of the border. Oh, I know nothing about politics. And then uh, begin to recount uh, changing marriage practices. And if one uh, listens, uh, uh, as I was inspired to do with the feminist year, then we see both hear and see it's extremely visual, right? It's a uh, it's a spatial visual account of the way in which a region and relations across this region, across this border, have changed shape and contours uh, over generations. Uh, you know, over you know where you marry from, right? So women were in fact uh, narrating and sketching out uh, temporally and spatially extremely sophisticated picture of um, a changing kinship geography. And so, you know, these, these are, uh, uh, in the book, I try to kind of subtly uh, infuse um, our understanding of the, the violence of border, the devaluation of bordering, the violence of bordering uh, into these, you know, other uh, ways to visualize that, these other visual um, modes. Hmm. Thank you. That's uh, that. That's great. Uh, I did have one last question about the book, which is that I found it very, very interesting how borderland residents in the Indian side, uh, the women, uh, were sort of uh, flirting with or sort of sexualizing the uh, BSF Jawan, right? And there were many instances of like prank calls or crank calls of uh, again like uh, very very obviously sort of sexualizing uh, the Javan. So what is, in it, like, how did you make sense of it? And what did you, what do you think that kind of reversal, I guess, of um, of um, danger or risk uh, do? Because normally we associate the sexualization of women's bodies, right? And obviously that is a thing that happens at the border um, by armed officers. So this reversal that you pointed out is so interesting. I just want to hear your thoughts on what it does to relations of power and authority at the borderland. Thank you. I'm, uh, you know, happy you uh, noticed and you draw attention to it in this conversation. So, you know, straight off, I, I should note that, of course, uh, there, there is no discounting, even as I uh, tell these stories and make place for them in, in, in the book, um, they are not to uh, discount or in any way uh, um, lessen the, the kinds of the inequality of power, right? There's no getting away from that, uh, which is that there are both India and Bangladesh in uh, Bangladesh to a much greater, uh, lesser extent, but both India and Bangladesh have armed uh, soldiers um, guarding this border, right? And carrying out uh, a range of policing and uh, security uh, uh, practices of surveillance and policing um, 
targeting people who live in these villages in these border villages there's no getting away from that and there's you know in the story there's only one set of actors that are armed uh, and have the power and authority of the state in uniform that said uh, and it's very you know it's you know on the indian side there are starting to be uh, uh, female soldiers but uh, you know it's very much a kind of male uh, face of the state militarized state in in the security state in these settings that said um the the kind of power dynamics at play in everyday negotiations of this militarized bordering is much more complex. And I didn't want us to miss out on that, right? That often these accounts of militarized bordering across the world, again, are told, you know, we have very few frames with which to talk about this violence, right? Either it's uh, it, it's often our options are sort of abjection, suffering, um, resistance uh, in terms of collective action or kind of fighting back, whether in kind of legal bureaucratic terms or kind of collective political action. Um, but I wanted to, just as uh, militarized bordering, uh, I think, unfolds not in spectacular uh, ways, but through actually very, very familiar uh, again, gendered heteropatriarchal social forms of relate, you know, of relation uh, relations. Um, countering those also comes through those uh, channels, right? Comes through those social, very again, uh, perhaps cheeky, but using those same sort of hetero uh, heteronormative heteropatriarchal relations, um, and so. Uh, flirtation was one of them, right? That women, that men and, you know, women um, engaged in with one another. And so even though this wasn't um, the kind of collective action that perhaps more liberal uh, um, approaches would have us, uh, you know, look for and want, uh, and, and flirting is also divisive, as I write about, right? So in the, you know, if I, I was told and I was alerted to this because all through my fieldwork, I was, I received all kinds of advice, right? What, what kind of a woman to be, uh, you know, be like flaunt your uh, class position and your language skills and be friendly, right? Or I was told, absolutely not. You know, you're a woman, you're on your own, be very, do like, don't talk to anyone, like, suddenly don't talk to men, suddenly don't talk to the guards, uh, you know, walk fast, like, don't engage in conversation. Um, I was told, uh, be friendly, but not too much, be respectable, uh, you know, so that I, I received all kinds of advice, which uh, meant, which taught me that being, you know, choosing to in these moments of encounter where women are being flirty, where, uh, you know, the, the the soldiers of the security state are not the only ones doing the looking, right? But women and, and, you know, men of all kinds as well, but certainly women are doing a fair bit of looking themselves, right? They're checking out these guards and they're using that, um, to talk about, uh, you know, who they are and what they can do in those encounters, right, is both divisive, right, it marks you out a certain kind of women who would do that. But it also shows that bordering as a practice, and this is, you know, your earlier question, Garima, where is bordering, is that bordering is not only in these encounters, bordering is in all these kinds of um, gossipy uh, chats that friends, female friends are having about who's doing the bordering, right? Who are these men? Uh, so bordering extends into all kinds of intimate spaces and desires and fantasies in unexpected ways, right? Um, and, and there are other uh, sort of darker sides to that too, which is that in a way it it uh, incorporates these young, these men, these soldiers into the, the life worlds, um, perhaps in a way uh, that makes them less uh, strange or unfamiliar. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Because I think when I read the book, um, the whole book is the search for this what and where the border is. And it takes us on this journey of the border as, uh, as a material hard fact, a real 
cut in the ground, but also a relation of value, but also a cultural fiction and sometimes a historical accident. And we keep moving between these different understandings of what the border is and where it is. And through it all, I realized that the story is not just of the border, but about lives that are lived in proximity with another, but over a border. So it's about neighborhoodness. It's about quarterminous lives. And that I think is something that I think we'll, um, we'll be thinking for a long time. I mean, maybe I just want to stop here and ask you uh, where you're headed next and what your next project is looking like. And um, uh, if it's a book project or if you're still doing fieldwork, um, just to hear about where you're going. Sure. Um... It's uh, it is a book project, uh, and you know maybe more. Uh, who knows? <laughs> you know where uh, ethnographic uh, where this research will take me. But it's very much grown out of uh, this project's uh, research, which is it, it's a project on the gendered labors of soldiering in India. And of course, you know, you can see I got into it uh, because of the insights I um, I was drawn into the lives of these border security, Indian border security force soldiers uh, who were very, very far, whose daily lives and concerns really uh, I, I found were very um, far from either the villains that I expected them to be coming from this very human rights sort of perspective. Uh, and of course, again, you know, structurally and as institutions and certainly as uh, as actors, people of the state, uh, the, the uh, various armed uh, institutions, armed forces in India have been um, responsible for all kinds of uh, violations and violences across uh, the country in places of their deployment. Uh, but then neither those villains nor the Bollywood style icon of the, you know, heroic soldier at the border, right? But actually, I got an insight into very, very mundane, highly unglamorous um, life of their work. Um, and so this, in a way, continues my interest in gendered um, work and labor and value, what makes what kinds of uh, relations, structures, political economies make work meaningful. And in, in this case, it's focused on soldiering as a form of waged work, as a form of gendered labor uh, in post-colonial India. Again, um, super interested in uh, the way in which work is, uh, different kinds of tasks are gendered, uh, and really the separation of the, uh, I became again interested in the way in which the borderlands that I write about in this book are agrarian home in all these kinds of complicated ways for people who live there, but it's a place of work. Uh, but also home, temporary uh, for the soldiers, right? So, uh, you know, the borderlands become barracks, uh, really domestic spaces in which they live, cook. So again, care for each other, socially reproduce themselves, um, their units, their kind of makeshift uh, uh, families, structured again in very heteropatriarchal terms as a family with a kind of father figure and a mother figure and those kinds of things. So I'm 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 exploring um the forms of kinship, work, uh, and domesticity that structure gendered labor of soldiering in post-colonial India. Thank you, Shana. That sounds very, very interesting. And I look forward to reading more of what comes out of that project. Um, but thank you so much for taking time out today and chatting with Garima and I. Uh, we really enjoyed the book. I think it's pretty evident from all the <laughs> questions that we were fielding you. And um, it's it's always such a such a joy to chat about your process and the way you approach ethnography and just theorizing. And um, it, again, the book is so expansive in its scope and its ideas. And uh, yeah. So everyone should read it and must read it. And uh, the writing is is very evocative and beautiful. I must say, it just I couldn't stop reading the book, and I think that's um, that's an achievement for an academic book. So <laughs> congratulations, and yeah, thanks again for joining us on New Books Network. Many many thanks, Neha and Garima. It was a, a pleasure to be prompted by your uh, questions. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me and for this conversation.